You mean it's a gift? No one ever told me it was a gift. I've told you his story before, but it's been a long time, and our congregation continues to grow and change. And so, as I start this series, I think it bears repeating once again. It was for me one of the most powerful moments in my life of watching the message of grace sink into somebody for the first time in a very profound way. Ernie's wife had been a member of the church I pastored in Kentucky before I was ever the pastor of the church. He didn't attend, but as our church grew, we started constructing a building. Ernie got interested, and so he started coming along with his wife. He was a member of the First Baptist Church in that town, but truth be told, he had not attended there for many, many years. And so he was getting a fresh start in church. He was in his early 70s by then. I'll never forget the day that we dedicated the new building, and we were eating refreshments in the new fellowship hall. And Ernie came over to me and began to talk, and he opened up a bit about his life. And he said, you know, I've never seen anything like this happening before in a church. And then he said, you know, I'd like to join your church. That's how he said it. And I said, well, Ernie, that's great. I'm glad that you're interested in becoming a part of our church. I'd love to sit down and talk with you about that, and maybe we can do that this next week. And so we did. So Ernie came to my office, a little small, cramped office in a small house out in the country in that church we began a conversation we went over some preliminaries talked about the fact that he used to be at first baptist when he was young and i said ernie we're really glad that you want to become a part of our fellowship but we're more interested in this than you're becoming a member of our church we really want to make sure that everyone who becomes a part of our church knows for certain that they have eternal life and so I said, Ernie, would you mind if I ask you a question? He said, no, not at all. And so I said, well, Ernie, I want to ask you this. Have you come to the place in your life that you know for certain that if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven? Or is that something you'd say you're still working on? And he said, yeah, I, I believe it would. I, I guess I would go to heaven. And I said, well, that's, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. He said, God wants you to know that. The Scripture says, these things have I written unto you. Believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so I said, let me ask you a second question. Suppose you were to die today and stand before the Lord, and he were to ask you why I should let you into heaven, what would you say? And he dropped his head, looked back up at me, and began to give me his laundry list, that he'd been a good husband, father, been a decent man, had believed in God, had tried to treat people right, from that point on, I knew Ernie really didn't understand the message of grace. So from that point, I began to talk to him about the grace of God. And that if he wanted to go to heaven, he would have to stop depending on those points of good deeds to get into heaven. For if that were his approach, it was going to fail. Because God would demand that he be perfect in his deeds and in his morals his thoughts, everything about him. Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And he certainly was not going to be able to give God perfection. And then I explained to him that eternal life was a gift that God wanted to give to him freely because of Jesus and what Jesus had done. All he had to do was receive it. And I'll never forget that 70-plus-year-old man 
leaning up in his chair across my desk with big tears in his eyes. He said to me, you mean it's a gift? He said, nobody ever told me it was a gift. And I said, Ernie, it's a free gift. And right here and right now, you can, you can receive Christ as your Lord and your Savior. And would you like to do that? And he said, yes. And we got down on our knees in that little office. And he experienced the grace of God in the midst of tearful joy. And went on to blossom into a beautiful Christian. Ernie experienced grace. Now, grace is a word that I'm sure you have heard, but I find that so many people really do not know what the word means or how it is applicable to their daily lives. I find that a lot of Christians really don't understand what it means, as Paul says, we we stand in the grace of God. Or how do we live with the grace of God? How does that apply to my life? And I find there's a lot of shortened understanding, not full understanding. Grace is an incredible word. It is perhaps the most important word you can know about the disposition and the activity of God. It's the most important word that you can know when it comes to experiencing eternal life. Chuck Swindoll said that there's one and only one password for entering heaven, grace. The Apostle Paul refers to grace at the beginning and the ending of all of his letters. Go back and read his letters. He begins with grace, he ends with grace. For him, as one writer put it, the Christian life is summed up in the grace of God. And so for the next several messages, I want to explore with you the incredible life of grace. We'll seek to understand the concept of grace from Scripture. And then we'll also look at how this word applies to our daily lives. And I have no doubt that if you and I can truly understand and live by grace, it'll be the most liberating, freeing, joyful experience for the rest of our days. It'll transform how you view God, how you view yourself, how you approach your work, your leisure, your victories, your defeats, how you raise your children, how you love your neighbor, how we live as citizens. We're to be God's grace-filled people. And we'll be talking about the incredible life of grace, the grace-filled life. Christian apologist Lee Strobel has said that sometimes to understand grace, we need to see it described rather than merely defined. And his point is that sometimes it's easier to understand grace through a story than by just looking at a definition. And so as we get started today, I want to do just that with you by looking at an incredible story of grace found in the Old Testament. In this story, we find out what grace looks like, what God is like, and how we can enter into the life and the experience of grace. And I've entitled the message today, The King of Grace, The Panoramic View, Looking at the King of Grace and What He Wants to Do in Our Lives. And you'll find the text in 2 Samuel chapter 9 in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And we'll read the whole chapter. It's only uh, 13 verses. So let's look at 2 Samuel 9 where we see a wonderful story of grace. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? 
at your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. But Phibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. People in our culture are still generally familiar with some stories in the Bible, like Noah's Ark, the splitting of the Red Sea, Daniel in the lion's den. But this one is less familiar. Mephibosheth. It just sounds different. I mean, who is he? Mephibosheth. It's apparently not a, a name. You know, you might name your child Daniel. I don't see many of you lining up to name a kid Mephibosheth. It just sounds weird to our ears. His original name was Merib Baal or Merib Bell. And perhaps it was changed by copyist scholars believed to avoid writing down a pagan god's name. Baal was part of his name, the pagan god. Mephibosheth was the son of David's friend Jonathan. Jonathan was King Saul's son, and thus Mephibosheth, I just want to say M because it's so hard to say that over and over again. So so what does it say? M. I'll say it. Mephibosheth is the grandson of Saul, the king who reigned before David. Now you'll notice twice in uh, this chapter, it lets us know that Mephibosheth was crippled. It says twice that he was lame in both feet. He couldn't walk. And this was the result of an accident that had taken place when he was a little bitty boy. His father, Jonathan, had been killed in battle when Mephibosheth was only five years old. Saul was also mortally wounded in that same battle, and he ended up falling on his own sword and taking his life. And so when the word came back to headquarters, to where they lived, if you go back to chapter 4, verse 4, you'll notice how Mephibosheth came to be lame in both feet. The Bible says, 2 Samuel 4, 4, that Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old. When the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, that is, that his father and his grandfather are killed, his attendants are afraid the Philistines will come and destroy him, and so what do they do? They try to protect him. And so it says here that uh, his nurse picked him up and fled 
But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. So she grabs him up as a little boy and starts to try to run. Somehow or another, she's tripped up and falls, and he gets paralyzed. He's lame in both feet, so he's crippled for the rest of his life. So we see here that after the death of Jonathan and Saul, David became king of Judah, but Saul had another son, Ishbosheth. He was put on the throne of Israel. In the northern kingdom, David was reigning in Judah in the southern kingdom before the nation would eventually be under all of David's rule. So there was civil conflict between Saul's house and David's house. David's house got stronger. Saul's house grew weaker. Finally, Ishbosheth is killed. And the last remaining person ruling in Saul's house or living in Saul's house, capable of ruling, is dead. And so then David becomes the, the king over all of Israel. And eventually he conquers Jerusalem and moves the capital there, brings the ark there to Jerusalem. And in time, when things are all settled, David has defeated his enemies. The Lord has blessed him. His borders have expanded. Now that's when we come to this chapter in verse 9 where things have settled down and David wants to bless someone. He's well established. And David says, I want to bless someone. I want to show kindness to someone, to demonstrate grace towards someone, someone in the house of Saul. And it is here that he is told about Mephibosheth. Several years have passed by now. Mephibosheth has his own son, Micah. So he's well down the road in age. He's living in a place called Lodibar, which is on the other side of the Jordan. It's a long way from Jerusalem. It's a place that the word means that it lacks bread, basically. And now we see in this story grace described. Today, we're just going to get a flyover picture, a panoramic view, sort of the mountaintops of grace I want you to see today in this wonderful story. So what do we see here? It's certainly analogous to what the Lord does in relationship to us. And so in this story, first of all, we see a king who's determined to show grace. In this big picture, there's this powerful king who desires to bestow grace upon someone. Go back to chapter 9, verse 1. Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Verse 3, the king asks, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness. Do you see that? He wants to show God's kindness, God's grace. And so as David's life has settled down to some normalcy, his mind and heart have turned to this desire to bless someone from the house of Saul. Now this is quite unusual. I mean, usually when one king would succeed another, he would make sure that all of the rival males, if it was not in his family, that they were wiped out. Read through your Old Testament. He'd make sure that all the people who could potentially threaten the throne would be killed, such as you see in North Korea, the leader there, Kim Jong-il. He kills his own family. Anybody he perceives as a threat, they're going to leave this planet. doesn't matter if it's his brother, sister, mother. doesn't really matter. And in the ancient world, that's how it was. When a new king came to the throne, all of the rivals would have been wiped out. Anybody was a threat. But here... David puts out the word that he wants to bless somebody in Saul's family. Saul had tried to kill him, but he says, I want to bless them. And so Mephibosheth comes into the picture. When you and I think about the word grace, 
In the Old Testament, in Hebrew, the word translated grace, it means to bend or to stoop. That is that someone condescends or bows or bends over. Someone that's in a position of strength bends over to bless someone else. They condescend, they stoop to bless someone else. Much like the Lord Jesus did in Philippians 2 when we read about him leaving heaven to come here. He did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. But he humbled himself as we looked at during the Christmas season. And took on the form of a servant into humanity that we might be blessed. And so that is the disposition here of David toward Mephibosheth. He is stooping, humbling himself in a sense to bless Someone who had been his rival, who had been his enemy as far as households go. And so, as we think about David here, we certainly see something of what God is like. Because he says here in the text, I want to show someone God's kindness, God's grace. David here is an example to us of our great king that we've been singing about this morning, sitting on his throne. That our great God, his disposition toward all of us, toward every one of us in this room, and every human on this planet, is that he desires to bend over to bless us, to dispense grace upon us. He is a great king who simply because he is good and kind and loving, wants to bless us by taking us to himself. And so I want to say to you this morning that no matter how far away you may feel from God, how alienated and wounded you may feel, hurt or angry, broken by life, you may feel God is against you. And our culture often wants to paint God in the wrong way. But I want you to see here that there is someone who made you who has not forgotten you, who knows your name, who's putting out a great effort to find you because he desires to bless you and permanently to give you an indescribable gift. And he loves you. He desires to show his immeasurable kindness towards you. And I think that for us really to understand grace, to come to live by grace, we must start off right here of understanding the nature of our God as revealed in Scripture. Not how our world wants to paint our God. Our great God, Father, Son, and Spirit is often misrepresented and misunderstood in our culture as some powerful being who is either out to crush us or uninvolved or to destroy us or simply to enforce His will. But the accurate picture is that He's deeply involved and that His disposition, because the Bible says that God is love, His disposition is to desire, is the desire to stoop toward us, to bless us, to show favor toward us as his people. And maybe this morning you've wandered in here and you have, you've never really spent much time really trying to understand God or really seek after God. The Bible says, if, if you will seek me, God says, with your whole heart you will find me. But maybe you have some walls up against this God. You think that he is someone who's just powerful and out to get you. Your life isn't going really well right now. Maybe he's against you. I want to invite you to begin right here to understand that's not the God of Scripture. I want you to understand right here that you need to let down your guard and to know that He is out to help you, not to harm you. 
Jesus said he came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And that's his disposition towards you. Stephanie Fast lives in the Northwest, and she has never known her father. He expects that he was an American soldier, possibly an officer, who fought in the Korean conflict that started in 1950. But she now lives here. But it's a long story for her to get here. She's very petite, five foot three. She is married to Daryl, who's a former missionary. And her story is one that is a great story of grace. Her earliest memory is back to around her third or fourth year of age, living in Korea after the Korean War. And she said it was Harvest Festival in Korea, and the family members all had gone to their ancestral home, and she, should, she remembered all the fun, the sweets and games and wearing a beautiful dress. But she vividly, vividly recalled her mom being sad and sorrowful. And what happened was she heard a discussion going on in the family that night that said, look, there's a man who wants to marry you. You have this half-breed child. This is a great opportunity for you to save face, for you to recover from what has happened in your life being with this American. It was after the war, half-breed children, as she calls herself, were not appreciated in any way whatsoever. And so that was the proposition the family gave to her mother that night. And she said, I remember my mom crying and holding me all night long. So what did she do? Well, the next day, the mom had reached her decision that she was going to entrust her to somebody else. And so she said, I'm going to send you to your uncle's home. And so she remembered walking down the dirt road to the city with her mom. And they heard a train, and her mom said, that's where we're going. Think about this, three- or four-year-old little girl. And she said, you know, Asians didn't have paper bags back then, so her mom took a cloth and put some food in it and wrapped it up, had a couple of uh, outfits in it, and she put her on the train and said, when all the people get off, you get off and your uncle will be there to meet you. And so she rode the train, eventually it stopped, everybody got off, she got off, no uncle. The day went by and Everybody left, the train shut down, the guy working there came out, and no uncle. She doesn't know to this day whether or not her mom just sent her away, because that sometimes happened. She didn't want to think that about her mom, that she knew there would be no one there. Or maybe she went to the wrong station. But nevertheless, this little three, four-year-old child was all by herself. And finally, she was standing there, the train, train master who had come out, he called her a tugi, which was an epithet, spitting it out. It's almost like today uh, calling somebody the N-word. And no one came. And for this little girl, that began about a three- to four-year journey of her being homeless. No one taking her in. Sometimes a woman would open up the kitchen area so she could sleep to stay warm. She uh, learned to eat uh, field mice to take care of herself. Uh, she learned to steal rice, all those kinds of things. 
She ate locust. Finally, she traveled from place to place. She ended up in a sort of an orphanage with a lot of orphaned kids, but after a few days, people started abusing her in that. Finally, a cholera epidemic hit. She was sick. There was another little girl that was very sick, and she was trying to take care of her, and she was very weak. By this time, she's seven years of age. She only weighs about 30 pounds, and apparently she passed out. And she said she woke up and opened her eyes and saw some blue eyes. And she later learned those were the blue eyes of Iris Erickson, a World Vision nurse from Sweden. And her job was to rescue the babies that were being discarded. And so she would take them and take care of them. And so she took her to take care of her briefly. But her focus was on babies. This little girl was seven years of age. Normally she would have been turned out. There was nothing to do, no one to help her. But Ms. Erickson, as she tried to minister to this little girl, she got up to leave her one time, and Iris Erickson said, my legs felt so heavy. And she said, I heard the Lord say, this one is mine. Twice this little girl had already been spared death when people had tried to kill her. And so she kept her on there in the orphanage with these children. And she helped take care of the little babies. And finally, one day, there was a couple that showed up. She called him Mr. Goliath because he was so big. And he and his wife had come there because they wanted to adopt a little boy. And so she got the little boys all fixed up, pinched their cheeks, all that kind of stuff. And the man would go by, and he'd pick up one of these little boys and smell him and kiss him. And she had never seen anything like that. It got her attention. He went to the next one, the next one. And she, she began to be drawn to this man who was, who was doing this. And by this time, she was still filthy. She said, I had so many lice in my hair, my hair was white. But she said, finally, this Goliath man came over and put his hand on my head, and she said, I'd never felt anything like that. And he knelt down and he held me. And she really began to experience for the first moment what love and what the grace of God was like. But you see, she had her guard up because she had been abused so many times and in so many ways and her life had just been a wreck. And she said, I couldn't believe what I did, but when he was trying to talk to me, all of a sudden she said, I spit in his face and hit him and ran away. We'll come back to it in a bit. She met a man that day who was determined to show grace. And I want you to know, no matter where you are in your life, no matter how many walls you have up, what you are feeling, I want you to know that the disposition of the God who made you is that he's like this great king and he wants to bless you. He wants to love you. That's who he is. But then secondly, when we look in this text, we see another thing about this great king. We see that this king gives grace because of another. Notice chapter 9, verse 1. David asks, is there someone, anyone still left of the house of Saul whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Do you see that in the text? For Jonathan's sake. Now, why does he say that? Well, Jonathan had been David's deepest, closest friend earlier in life. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 18, you can read that uh, 
that it says after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. David and Jonathan became the deepest of friends, the closest of friends. And over time, their friendship was so deep that Jonathan sided with David. He protected David when Jonathan's father, Saul, was trying to kill him because David was a threat to the throne. And so Saul would get angry and he'd want to kill David. And Jonathan would be running interference trying to protect David. And finally, they come down to the point where Jonathan really feels his dad wants to kill him, but he's not sure, so David's out in this field waiting to see if a thing unfolds one way or another so he'll know if Saul's trying to kill him. Word is, it comes down, that Saul is trying to kill him. And so if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 20, you'll notice in verse uh, 13, Jonathan says, If my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father But then notice verse 14, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness. You see that? Show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Verse 23, we see again that about the matter you and I discussed, remember the Lord is witness between you and me forever. We've made a covenant for you to protect me now and my descendants to show mercy and grace to us. And down in verse 42 of 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace. We have sworn sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. So now we're a long way down the trail. Jonathan's dead. All of Saul's house is dead. David is on the throne. And he's remembering this covenant that he had with Jonathan. Because of Jonathan... He wants to bless whoever else is there in Saul's house. And so David now wishes to honor that agreement. And so his heart mismoved here because of his greater love for the one who was willing to put his life on the line for him. And thus he acted. You know, this so mirrors the fact that God the Father is seeking to bless and dispense grace on us because of His Son, the Lord Jesus. Regardless of how far we are from God, or how much we feel we messed up our lives, even if we're like Christopher Yuan last week, who talked about that when he was in prison for selling drugs, he had been diagnosed with HIV, and remember he was walking through the corridor there and saw that garbage can that he said they don't empty the garbage all the time and it's all just flowing over the top of it and he said that's my life that's what I've done to my life I made a wreck of my life I made a trash heap of my life well friend we need to see here that no matter what has happened in our life God is out to show favor to us but he's out to do it because of another and this is so important for us to see This is referred to as the covenant of grace. 
You see, we've all failed God in our sin. All of humanity has. We could have had fellowship with God forever just had we been obedient, but we're not. We've broken fellowship with God, made Him our enemy. Not that He desires to be our enemy, but we have made Him our enemy. We have put up the walls to Him. We've sought to build life around ourselves, apart from Him. We've become hostile to Him. Yet this great God, this Father, this King has acted to seek to enter into a relationship with us again. But this time, there was one that came, the Lord Jesus, as a mediator between us and God. And that's so important because, you see, the Lord Jesus has fulfilled all the demands of the covenant so the Father can accept us. This new covenant, He was absolutely obedient for us. He died for our disobedience in our place. And so this new covenant has been written in His blood, and it's offered to us by invitation. God wants to bless you and me because of the arrangement with His Son, something He has done outside of us, that He loves His Son and what His Son has done so much that He wants us to share in that, to give that to us now as a gift. That's what grace is all about. That's the gift Ernie and I were talking about. And all you have to do to come into this covenant of grace is to respond, to come, to receive it. Like Mephibosheth, David said, I want to bring you into my family because of Jonathan. All you got to do is leave that place where you are and just come. Come be with me. And I'll take you in because of what someone else has done for you. I grew up a couple of streets back from a family. I went to church with them. And in this family was a husband and a wife, and they had one son, and he was severely autistic with some mental disability. The father was about my dad's age. They were friends. They man, would sometimes come to our house. He wasn't like the closest of my dad's friends, but they were friends. We went to church together. This man began to age. He, he died a couple of years ago, about 85 years of age. But as he began to age, the question was, who's going to take care of his son? And he finally made an arrangement with another one of the men in the church, somewhat younger than, than he was and my dad, that when I'm gone, I want you to take care of my son. Use all of my assets. Watch over him. And he'd arranged for this friend to always be there. And you know, this son is still living today. He's probably about my age. And he'll always be taken care of because of the arrangement between these two men. All he has to do for the rest of his life is to receive that because of the arrangement between these two men. And you see, the great God who made you has this arrangement with his son. And all you have to do is receive this arrangement of what has been done. That you might have eternal life. But it's more than just eternal life, and we're going to be looking at this in the weeks ahead. I want you to see one other thing. As we look at this story, this great story of grace here, we, we notice one other thing, and that is we see a king here who adopts the one who has nothing to offer him. So look at Mephibosheth. 
There's a king who desires to show grace to someone in Saul's family on behalf of Jonathan. Who is left? Was this broken man Mephibosheth. He has nothing to offer David. He will not be able to do any work to make David's kingdom better or stronger. He can't work. David doesn't need him to do anything that he can't take care of himself. On balance, Mephibosheth can only receive. On balance, he'll become someone David has to take care of fully. And that is what David does. In essence, what you see here is he adopts Mephibosheth. Because you'll notice that Mephibosheth, it says, continues to come to David's table as David's sons. So here's Solomon the studious coming in, reading his books for supper. And sitting down, right? And there's Absalom, the, the great athletic-looking guy who eventually would take on his dad. He comes in. All these children come in. And then you hear somebody bringing the cripple down sit at the king's table as one of his sons. He's been adopted. You know, adoption is the most poignant picture of grace, I think, in the Bible. And we'll be looking at this most deeply in the coming weeks. All of us are crippled like Mephibosheth. We have nothing to offer the king. We can only be recipients. But this king does not just desire to show grace to avoid killing us as an enemy. He wants to bring us into his family, to adopt us, to give us a place at the table as children. And so Mephibosheth gathered, and nothing was ever going to change that. And I want to say to you in this series, if you can grasp this concept of adoption, it'll transform your life. It'll transform you to see what God really wants to do for you in the life of grace. Well, Goliath wanted to bless someone and adopt him into his family in the Korean orphanage. <clears throat> so he and his wife came back. And they'd made a decision at that point that they were not going to adopt a little boy and name him Stephen. They wanted to adopt a little girl and they were named her Stephanie. And so they came, and this little girl who had spit in his face and ran away, they adopted her. They took her home to their little apartment. They were American missionaries. And this little girl, because of her background, she thought that they had purchased her basically to be their slave, their servant. And so she thought this was nice quarters to work in. She was going to work and serve them. Couldn't figure out why they were being so nice to her. And finally, one day, she was talking to another girl, and the girl said, don't you realize that they adopted you? They're treating you this way because you're now their daughter. And she ran home, and she still was having trouble communicating with them to say, I'm your daughter. I'm your daughter. And as she was interviewed about this, about her life, coming into this relationship with these folks, as an adult, someone asked her, well, how did that make you feel? 
And finally she said this, it was. And she threw up her hands and said, there are no words. There are simply no words. That's what grace is like. And I want you to know this morning, there is a great king and God, a father, who desires to bless you and to stoop to give you grace because of his son and to bring you into his family, into a relationship where he will always treat you better than any human being will ever treat you. Doesn't mean you won't have problems, but he'll always be for you. He'll always be working for your good. And maybe today you're here and for the first time in your life, you need to open up your heart and receive this one who desires to bless you. Trust in his son. Come in your crippled state to receive him and let your chains fall off that are binding you. He's not calling you to perform. You can't offer anything to him anyway. He desires to set you free from all of those things, from your guilt, from your bondage, from all of your problems to set you free. And he desires to bind up your wounds and take care of you. He will never leave you, nor he will never let you go. Stephanie said one other thing about her life. With all the pain and struggle she went to, through in those first seven or eight years of her life. And she had trouble after that as in her teen years when they came back to the States of really grasping that she was really clean and free in Jesus. But she said this, she said, I will never, would never exchange any of my experiences no matter how bad they were because she said it was those things that led me to Jesus. And maybe you're in great pain here this morning. God has not inflicted your pain. He's allowed you to experience it. But his desire is for you to come to him. He's done all that he can do. Will you respond? Father, we thank you for this uh, great story. Help us in these coming weeks to understand more fully the great grace of God. We pray as we sing this wonderful Lord song, Amazing Grace, my chains are gone, that you would set people free. There may be someone, Lord, who's not ready to walk down this aisle, but this morning you touch their heart. And so, Lord, right now help them let down their defenses and call upon Jesus to be their Savior, to receive your blessing, your grace because of Jesus, to be adopted into your family. Lord, I pray that if there are those that need to be set free in their understanding of you, even as Christians over these coming weeks, that, Lord, you'd begin to lay a spiritual foundation, the work of your Spirit in their lives, to liberate them. And, Father, we pray if there are those you want to add to this fellowship in these coming weeks to a grace-filled, grace-preaching church. God, lead them here to Concord and give them freedom to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we